0: You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's
1: get ready to rumble!
2: Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, this episode, hot off the presses. Patrick Dupre Quigley has been named Artistic Director Designate of DC's Opera Lafayette with his first obstacle going inside the huddle with Team OBS. <laughs> and then in TKO, Mozart versus Mozart versus Mozart enters the second period when another soubrette is thrown into the rink with Susanna and Despina. Find out which opera Oliver is backing in this epic showdown of Mozart operas. Plus in the two-minute drill katarina wagner warned you several times about raising your prices and now you're not sold out make sure you subscribe to the podcast spotify click follow apple podcasts hit the plus sign send us that voice memo or even just email us your hot ticks. opera box score at gmail.com you're going to get the obs beer coaster the OBS lapel pin, just for sharing your own hot take. It's great to be back on the show. It's been a crazy July, but now I get to look at Oliver and Weston's faces.
3: Mm. Aww. So sweet. Which is your favorite face you have to pick? <laughs> no, no, well, no, no, no. Here, no. Here, Which of your children is your favorite? <laughs> so I, I stepped away
2: from the show for a few weeks, and then all of a sudden, Northwestern University Football and baseball have hazing allegations. Kevin Maxson becomes the first publicly out male coach from a major Americans pro sports league. He's the associate strength coach in Jacksonville. A possible three hundred and thirty two million dollar contract is offered to a soccer player and Wimbledon has two first time winners.
4: Yeah, all that's all that sports stuff happened. Yeah. I yeah, guess I should just go happened. away
2: more often. It's crazy. <laughs> like all that sports stuff happened. And you're the I was only gone.
3: one who knows what to talk about. You know, we're just kind of sitting here. Well, I mean you know, Oliver was Oliver
2: tennis, was but... watching Wimbledon, I'm sure. Oh yeah. I
4: certainly was. And um Ashley wanted us to make sure we included this announcement uh from Kevin Maxon. Uh I'm sure she'll have more to say about it herself when she's joining us again next week.
2: I mean, there have been other coaches, men and women who have gone out of the closet while being on a on a roster, but this is this is a huge deal that someone mm, of this is prominence massive. in the NFL would be publicly out, and I, I applaud it. I is, that really, is that really
4: is that a name that people know? Uh,
2: yeah, the Jacksonville Jaguars. They're not a great NFL team, but they are one of 32 that make millions and millions of dollars every year. So yes, I think this is big news. Let us talk some opera.
4: Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So this could have been a two-minute drill story because uh, just a few days ago, Opera Lafayette named the successor to its founding artistic director, Ryan Brown. And that will be conductor and pianist and arranger and I think composer too, but mostly conductor, Patrick Dupre Quigley. Uh, Patrick Dupre Quigley is known mostly for being the founder of the Miami-based choral ensemble, Seraphic Fire. While Opera Lafayette, the DC-based company, is known mostly for its uh, exploration of uh, 18th and 17th century repertoire with gentle forays into the 19th century. But their (laughs) bread and butter uh, is a very niche repertoire, which is French Baroque, which as you all know, I love all things French Baroque. So of course, this was big news for me. (laughs) <laughs> uh, before we dive into this interview with Patrick, uh, let's hear a little bit of Afra Lafayette's recording of Luli's Armide. Just a little bit of music from Luli's Armide. A recording made by Opera Lafayette under the direction of Ryan Brown, and today our guest is the new, newly appointed—I uh, guess—music director, artistic director. What's the title going to be, Patrick? Uh, I'm the artistic director designate as of right now. Okay, but you will—you have been designated. <laughs> I have been designated
0: to be the artistic director uh, starting in July of 2025.
4: Excellent, Patrick Dupré Quigley. Welcome to Opera Box Score.
0: It's a, it's wonderful to be here. Great to be with
4: you. So this news is literally it's it's almost like a scoop. It was just announced a few days ago uh, that you have been named the uh, upcoming the designated artistic director of Opera Lafayette, which is a DC-based company that um really the the mission and the the genre of music that is covered by Opera Lafayette has been expanding, but at their heart they are a company that does French baroque opera would you say that's true
0: yeah i mean it's a it's a company that really i mean period instrument opera is 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 the biggest sort of middle of the road of where they are um but uh i think that the Opera Lafayette has sort of lived between the late seventeenth and the early nineteenth century French repertoire for mm-hmm. uh, a good portion of its uh, of of its, of its existence. not exclusively
4: yeah uh, but no. uh, but but you said nineteenth century is that's so modern for me. so <laughs> I, <laughs> I totally
0: yes getting 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 crazy there, you know.
4: so we'll talk about uh, your other big job that you have, but um what is your relationship to that? repertoire. I didn't know you conducted opera. We'll talk about you, what you're known for in a little bit. But uh, how do you uh, you know, acclimate to that sort of specific niche of the opera canon?
0: I've been with a group called Seraphic Fire for about 20 years now. Um, and with that group, we've actually performed a good bit of opera, um, almost entirely opera in concert or semi-staged opera. Um, and uh, one of the places that we sort of have lived considerably, um is in the music of Henry Purcell, which has a pretty serious relationship with the music of the French Baroque, um, in that the, you know, the, the English court was in exile in France for uh, a good portion of the, or a portion of the 17th century. And so that sound and the sound of the 24 violins uh, that were at the court of the of the of the French court um, became sort of the basis for Uh, the music uh, at the English court uh, upon the restoration of the monarchy. And so I, I, I love, I love that music, but also um, traffic fires also performed a good bit of music from 17th century France, particularly the music of uh, Marc Antoine Charpentier and Couperin as well. And so um, that sort of exquisite vocalism, um, highly ornamented, which you know, we we might talk about just how close that is related to sort of my root, my New Orleanians roots um, and playing sort of both sort of traditional church music as well as gospel. Um, that sort of highly improvisational style, I think, is is very related to the music of, of, of the French Baroque. And. Um, I'm also sort of a, I, I will say that I am a Bill Christie junkie. I love Lazar Art and have since like, I can remember music. So
4: Good. Well, let's put a pin in your New Orleans comment. Cause that's coming up in a second. <laughs> um, but um, let's talk about Bill Christie and like the history of how, you know, America, an American went to France and started <laughs> the French Baroque revival. And like, I mean, there's, I, I want somebody to draw, like the family tree of like how we got to all these fantastic ensembles, and they're mostly in Europe, and they're mostly in France. There's like a new one pops up every day, you know, yeah. that is doing like this period instrument, you know, very sassy, stylish uh, French seventeenth and eighteenth century repertoire. But now it's come back full circle, and now we've got Patrick Dupré quickly uh, doing this repertoire, following in the footsteps of Ryan Brown.
0: Yeah, I so I I first came in contact with the music of Les Arts and William Christie, actually not through French music, but through his recording of Messiah, which was recorded sort of live at the Aix provence Festival um in the I think the early two thousand. The one with
4: Lorraine Hunt. Uh
0: no, it's the one with who oh, is she on that? Maybe so. Um uh I think of Andreas Scholl as sort of being the, okay, the yeah. heart of the of 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 that recording and Centrine Pio. Uh, and uh, wow. and I think is it and Nathan Berg is on, on it as yeah. well. And um, yeah. uh, it's a it's a it's a really I mean it's a spectacular uh, it's a spectacular recording. But I, I I studied my my undergraduate degrees in music history and theory at the University of Notre Dame, and uh, my performance practice class started out with someone playing. Um, it was sort of to un- understand what baroque performance practice meant. start out by playing. A recording of Thomas Beecham's recording of, the, of Messiah <laughs> in the in the, in the arrangement with you know yeah. snare drums and cymbals and harp, and then yeah. Bill Christie's arrangement and playing the hallelujah choruses side by side. And um, I mean, the very interesting thing about um, about Messiah in Lazare Flory's recording is just how French it is. Um, I, you know that they have that incredible moment in the in the. In sort of like the second theme of of the holiday chorus for the Lord God omnipotent, and then puts that great sort of upper neighbor chove for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, um, just spectacular. It blew my mind. And so
4: um, starting out in my group, and people always give me the side eye. Like
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's it's wonderful. I mean, it's a testament to sort of you know American entrepreneurism. uh, You know, because I think you know. I believe uh, Bill Christie studied at Yale, and um, I think with Kirkpatrick, and then um, sort of left and realized it just just wasn't that much opportunity to do what he wanted to do in the United States, um, and went over to France to perform the music that he loved. And thank goodness for the state sponsored arts that have really um, that have really allowed that sort of entrepreneurial small ensemble to flourish in um, highly specialized at that um, ensemble to flourish in in France. Um,
4: I have a a shameful story. Uh, When (laughs) when I was in college, one of my roommates was a French violin maker. And um, this was when I was like studying voice and like really just loving just operatic voices all the time. And I had my recording of the Stabat Mater, the Pergolesi with mm-hmm. um june anderson and, oh yes <laughs> yeah, and cecilia bartoli and it's like a, a conductor we don't talk about that much anymore and I you know and i love june anderson you know it's such a crazy instrument you know mm-hmm. and my roommate was like what is that horrible recording you to do here listen to this one it was gerard long and il seminario musicale with veronique jean you know yeah, and yes. and that one is like you know, one violin and a part and like just ever so slightly out of most sharp, almost, you know, like the the tone doesn't even stay in the same pitch. It's like, it starts flat, then it goes sharp. It's like it has <laughs> this whole journey it goes through, you know, and yeah. I just didn't, it like gave me like, I felt like, you know, what am I listening to? It sounds like guts, you know, it's, it sounds so odd. And now I love that sound. Of course, like now I'm like, I live for those sounds, but I can understand how some people it, it, it's hard for them if they're used to hearing vibrato and every note, they're used to hearing like everything is a long phrase, like no rhetoric, just beauty. You know, (laughs) I can understand how people, uh, you know, kind of cringe when they first start hearing period performances.
0: The craziest thing is that I think that we've established these camps of people who like are, are, are so adamantly opposed to one or the other. And as a, you know, as someone who grew up in a, in a, in a sort of a, a highly varied musical environment and doing very different things for my living and for um and for you know entertainment as well. And I, I think that you know, like to hear them side by side is like fascinating and invigorating to be able to say to anyone, like, listen, like these two things exist at the same time. You can do whatever you want to with this music now. I mean, we're we're I think we're we've moved beyond. Um, the early music movement being something that is restrictive, and rather, I mean, if we look at sort of Nico Muley arranging, uh, Arfeo, yeah, or or its yeah. at, at like yeah. this week at at yeah. the, at the Santa Fe Opera, you know, it I think it's 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 been like a remarkably freeing thing for those of us who want to see a larger mind space for both early and and romantic music at that, you know, like, I, I think that, I mean, I think people are now starting to look at romantic music and saying, well, maybe our concept of how we perform it in the 20th century is not how they performed it in the yeah. 19th century.
4: Yeah. It's coming from the 18th century. It's not coming from the 21st century. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, you did mention that you have this sort of a Creole background. And coincidentally, uh, one of the next projects you're doing for Opera Lafayette is to conduct an opera maybe for the first time being heard in the us since it was heard originally it was by... never heard originally oh really it's, okay this is okay.
0: this so this will be the world premiere of the of, of, of that opera it's it's never so, been performed
4: so the composer is edmund Dede. and the yeah. only reason why i know that name is because of my other job uh at wfmt the classical radio station in chicago when i was sort of tasked with you know making our music library more diverse i stumbled across this Recording from Hot Springs Festival. I don't even know what the Hot yeah. Springs
0: Festival is. But... <laughs> Richard Richard Regenberg group.
4: So. Yes, exactly. And I was like, this music is so cool, and now we play it all the time. So Edmund Day Day is part of the Creole Romantics. Yeah, um, yeah, a- African American composers that, uh, yeah. yeah, their music has been marginalized and for so long.
0: And you know, the, I mean, the interesting thing about Day Day is that you see. So he's born in 1829 in New Orleans, sort of antebellum louisiana which in 1827 was actually sort of a much more accepting place for a he was fourth generation freed person of color it was much more accepting when he was born than when he was a teenager so as louisiana marches toward the civil war it becomes a really terrible place i mean to to be anything other than a white male landowner um, but particularly to be a free person of color. Um, these people were seen as the ultimate threat against sort of um, the supremacy of of the plantation lifestyle, and so um, Edmund first leaves New Orleans to go to play. He studies with, I mean, sort of the great the great Creole musicians of New Orleans, um, Monsieur Lambert. I think I think he worked with. Basile Boret as well. He goes to um, he goes to Veracruz, comes back, and then in the early sort of the in his in his early 20s, um, exiles himself to Paris, where he becomes an auditor at the greatest conservatory in the world at the time, the Paris Conservatoire, and studies with Olivet. then um, goes on and becomes a very like established conductor, composer, vocal coach, uh, repetiteur in Bordeaux writes a number of operas. The only one that we actually have still, um full written-out operas, is um is this Morgian ou le Sultan des uh which exists in only one source. Um and it was lost for a hundred years. It's now in the Harvard Memorial Library. Uh it was never, as far as we can tell, it was never performed in Bordeaux. It was never performed in Paris. Um and so uh the past month and a half been going through with um engravers and taking this music out of the manuscript and putting it into Sibelius uh, and it's highly highly developed French music um, it is from a from a from a like a, a vernacular that would have been very similar to like Albert or David or um certainly like it preceded by Adolphe Adam and I mean these are it's yeah. it's very much of a time and 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 you think to yourself like name another american composer in the 19th century who wrote a four-act opera we, we have very very few people that we can talk about
4: this is a very exciting project uh edmund de morgan or the sultan of Isfahan, which is scheduled for the 24 season 24 25 season of opera lafayette yeah. hopefully a recording will ensue yes um you know we're, joseph balone's having a moment but there's no reason why edmund Dede should not also have a moment and we should we can claim you know, 19th century American opera, uh, but it just reminds me uh, because we're running out of time that your other job, which we talked about at the beginning of this, is uh, did you found Seraphic Fire or did I you did? Take- okay, so you yeah. founded Seraphic Fire, uh, which is a vocal ensemble that um, has always had inclusion as part of its brand. And um, I don't know, you said a couple minutes ago, like you mentioned white identity, <laughs> and I wonder <laughs> if like you know, when did you start thinking about this? Did, are you one of these guy, um, guys that like has had like white guilt before white guilt was a thing, <laughs> or do you just, I mean, I don't want to characterize how you came across the music that traffic fire performs. If you tried to make a niche for traffic fire by being inclusive at, a, at, a, at the early stages.
0: So, so my, I, 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 my parents are civil rights activists. My father's a civil rights okay. attorney. Um, if you've ever seen or read dead men walking the lawyer and that is based on my father. Oh, Wow. Um, uh, Sister Helen Prejot is my, is my confirmation sponsor and used to read me bedtime stories when I was six years old. Um, and so like I grew up in, my parents ran, met each other in the St. Thomas housing projects in New Orleans where Sister Helen was working, um, in a, in sort of a, a community, uh, place called Hope House. Um, my father, instead of just being an activist, decided to go back to um, law school. And so instilled in us the idea that like, you know, that, that culture is culture is what we make of it. And so uh, from, from the beginning, you know, we like I, I'm from New Orleans. I'm from, I, I'm from a place that has that the, the lines between black and white and Creole culture are fluid at all times. And if you choose to celebrate it, um, there's a lot to celebrate. And so coming as a kid from New Orleans who like played both Like traditional Roman Catholic mass and also gospel music and and, and leading sort of those sorts of ensembles when we started Seraphic Fire um, is very much part of my DNA to want to perform music that I mean I think of as like that should be in the concert hall. Seraphic Fire's name comes from a piece by uh, William Billings who's a continental, the first real truly quote unquote American composer. Um, He's a revolutionary composer, Um, but he writes in the shape note style, which is not something that Europeans would necessarily think of as being part of the concert life of, of, of like the Western European concert hall. And so once you open the door to American, early American music, like everything's fair game. And I, I think, I think that, that celebrating, those things which make us American, um, music from the slave spiritual tradition, um, music from uh, from sort of Appalachian mountains, um, all these things like, all these things sort of just compel us to have a more inclusive idea of what music is in the concert hall. So, well, um, not
4: just the the composers that are represented uh, on your in your. Uh, programming and in your recordings, but also the artists. And I do want to kind of round out this interview by uh, just highlighting some of the people that you have worked with. And it seems like you have a a knack for identifying who will clearly become full-fledged artists like Elijah McCormick, uh, yeah. the uh, male soprano who I've had the pleasure of working with and also came to Chicago to sing um, Balletto and uh, Cupid in Coronation de cecilia duarte uh who has her own brand of like you know uh doing uh latin american music uh with period instruments or um she also just being a fantastic singer amazing singer <laughs> uh, you Basic mentioned singer. a singer that i didn't know until just a moment ago uh what was what was their name again uh, uh El- at yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah uh who you said is a a non-binary singer uh. yeah um and we'll we'll talk about Reggie in a second, but can you just address this? I don't know, um, part of your uh, brand or part of your personal vocation to uplift um, singers who don't necessarily fall into like the most, uh, you know, expected categories.
0: Well, I think I think that that's sort of you know you 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 run like an all star choir mm-hmm. in the United States, and the people who come through come up through the chorus are often the people who have the least means to be able to participate in anything other than that, which is sort of offered in school for free. And as a result, and you know, as a result, you find people, um, Charles Wesley Evans, uh, the Calvin Lee, um, these the sort of these incredible voices who who from a personality standpoint don't necessarily fall into the places that we normally would put sort of heroic baritone or, um, stunningly handsome tenor, uh, like, you know, that, that, they don't look like the characters that we want to hear, um, or, or, or that we've been trained to want to see when we hear the specific voice. Um, and when we like, when, at least at Ceramic Fire, we're more concerned with the sound of music rather than the, than what music, what we look like. And so um, when, when you sort of start to think about, okay, how do we want to sound? Um, it really changes the way the personnel look in an ensemble because you don't have to fit a visual mold. Um, and so like, I think that, you know, Seraphic fire was started in Miami. Um, you know, we are, it is a, it is, it is the definition of a melting pot. Um, and so the, the, the beginnings of seraphic fire are in the community of Miami. Uh, Reggie's a, the Reggie Mobley, who has been a member of seraphic fire since season four. Um, I mean, I think we, we, we did a lot of our first Bach performances together. Um, Reggie's a like Reggie's from Gainesville, you know. Like it was just he was just a, a member of member of the Florida musical community, um, I, and I think that Reggie is sort of the I don't know the just the example of people whose voices don't necessarily match what you would assume they would sound like when you look at them for the first time, and I think that from like a early music standpoint that's sort of like what all music was. I mean, a lot of that music was performed from behind the screen or from the, from the back of the church. It didn't matter what you looked like. And so um, I wouldn't say that, like I went that, that was my primary goal in hiring the people that became the members of ceramic fire, but it certainly was an incredible bonus. Um, And I think we associate with great people who make great music. Um, And I don't want to take credit for like finding people. I think most of these people found us. Um, we just like were the space that were like, yeah, please, please come make music with us. We and want to.
4: They, re- they want to return clearly. Yeah, they want um, to continue the relationship with you. So uh, that is an inspiring thing to know that if you create space, people will come, and if you allow people to be artists, the artists that they are, and express their own voices, you get these amazing, unique new stories and new sounds, which uh, I think make Seraphic Fire such a, a joy to have in the community. Um, and now let's see what you do with Opera Lafayette. <laughs> <laughs> we'll close with uh, your arrangement of The Spiritual Over My Head uh, with Seraphic Fire and Reginald Mobley. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score.
0: Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.
4: A little bit of Reginald Mobley singing over my head in an arrangement uh, for Seraphic Fire, and our guest Patrick Dupre quickly at the piano.
2: Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Just click follow; it's that easy. Apple Podcasts hit the plus sign. So the last couple weeks, I've been in Verdi land, uh, (laughs) directing. Attila, which is an early Verdi opera for Opera Festival of Chicago. You know, I want to be honest with you. Verdi is not my wheelhouse, right? Like hmm, my bread and butter <laughs> is twenty first century opera in English. But I love a challenge, and this opportunity. Well, you never pass them up, but this one is especially good to be able to work with some phenomenal principal singers phenomenal instrumental pit and a chorus again a chorus is not something as a director that uh you get every so often
3: the only choruses you know are the
4: classic gilbert and sullivan uh
2: yes. you know re-
4: repeat everything the principals do
2: you
3: more know. so
4: <laughs> what he's saying is that the companies he's used to working with uh are storefront companies that do 21st century opera which usually don't write for chorus because they know what the restrictions are, the parameters are. For. Exactly.
2: Great to see a, a 21st century opera, of course. But here's the thing. Verdi is great. Is this the greatest Verdi opera ever written? No, it's not. At this point in his career, Attila is early Verdi. He had done a draft of Nabucco. This, is, I think, is the 8th or ninth opera that he wrote. It involves two librettists, one for Act 1 and one for Act 2. Excuse me. One for Acts 1 and 2, another for Act 3.
4: And boy, do you feel it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! Wow.
2: <laughs>
4: Who are the librettists?
2: Oh gosh! Yeah, um, don't,
4: don't ask him questions like that. It's like asking him to name six handle operas.
2: So. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's hard. I mean, I know Piave. I know, okay. but that's I just, one. That's one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
4: So I think most most audiences know Attila uh, for just the one. Dazzling uh, soprano cavatina exactly. yeah. santo di patria and it's cabaletta date questo mm-hmm. so i think for everybody after the first 15 minutes it was like all new <laughs> bro <everybody's laughs> oh wait there's uh, more yeah exactly
2: we've got lots more show for you as well let's get right down to it tko
4: tko On the OBS. So, George, you're going to have to go back and listen to last week's episode so you can be a fair judge for what we're asking you and Weston to do Mm. next week when we pit three acts of a Mozart opera from different operas. Uh, against each other to decide once and for all what is the greatest act of a Mozart the opera. The question that has been on the tips of everyone's tongue ever since the beginning
3: of everybody's opera Box been Sport. wondering it. I mean, like because yeah. uh, right right now we have uh, what is it? Act one of Così fan tutte. We have mm-hmm. Act two of
4: Marriage of Figaro. Of Marriage of Figaro yes. So what are you bring to the table, Oliver? Well, what I want to say is that this whole uh, idea for this uh, contest came about when I was watching Natalie Stutzman conduct don giovanni in hd from the met Mm. so i had not yet seen the magic flute i was only just it was my first experience with schutzmann conducting at the met in hd and it was so good i think when after we when we recorded the podcast after i saw that i was like oh my god i have never been a fan of don giovanni i'm going to come out as a not a don giovanni fan if i had to rank Mozart operas, like the, the big seven, Don Giovanni would be above Ida Mineo, but below Clemenza di Tito for me. Really? really? Not, I know, I know. Fascinating. <laughs> okay. And Yikes. it's because act two just loses all credibility because uh, you have like the commendatore in the garden scene, then you have the commendatore in the finale. Uh, you have this really ridiculous aria that Don Giovanni has to sing, Meta di voi, uh, which, you know, Don Giovanni really gets no true arias in this opera except for that one. He has the, uh, the serenade, De Vienna La Finestra, and he has the champagne aria, which is, you know, 90 seconds if it's even that long, you know, it's a drinking song. So Metà di Voi is supposed to be the aria that really gives us a chance to understand who Don Giovanni is because it's an extended aria, but it ends up being a lot like, um, Venite and Gino Chiatevi from Marriage of Figaro, where Susanna is giving directions to Cherubino to change clothes and et cetera, et cetera, you know? It's just like right. an aria where he's like giving directions, you know, but it tells us nothing about his character. The expository aria. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the the finale of Don Giovanni, if not get me wrong, is some oh, of the best... Oh, it's a bob. Yeah, it's some of the best music Mozart ever, has ever written, the commendatory scene, but it completely takes it out of the... Running for verisimilitude, uh, which I think makes Figaro the opera with the most verisimilitude, even though it has the most, you know, convoluted happenings of all, the, all these things happening in one day. Yeah, right. You know, but still uh, with magic added into this uh, narrative, uh, it makes Don Giovanni to me a little bit incredible. Um, but, of course, it is a masterpiece. It's genius. I just don't like Act 2. I'm happy with <laughs> Act 1. And after having heard Nathalie Stutzmann and this amazing cast that they had assembled for the Met HD production, uh, I really started to believe, oh, wow, this might be Mozart's best 80 minutes that he's ever written, you know? Huh? it From the overture right into very high-stakes drama, Like most operas written by Mozart, Overture, pause, applause. Okay, now let's begin the action. (laughs) Nope. Mozart doesn't want even to break for applause. This is like looking very forward to what happens in romantic era operas where it's like, He didn't didn't have time with the Overture to to add a
3: break. He's like, I got to do this tomorrow. Let's go.
4: Yeah, he famously wrote the Overture just hours before the premiere. Uh, So those guys were sight reading that thing. Uh, So, yeah, we go right into uh, a sexual assault. And, you know, this is the late 18th century, and we're watching a sexual assault happen on stage. And then minutes later, we see a murder on stage. Mm. This is crazy for Enlightenment-era opera. It it is pretty, like, right out of the gate hit you
3: in a way that you don't really see. You know, most of those things are saved for... Yeah. You know, the the second
4: to last act usually and then they have to clear the dead body of Donna Anna's father off the stage. And then, you know, Donna Anna just goes into shock and it's very realistic this this whole first, you know, strand of of uh it's, it feels like one scene all the way up until the entrance of Donna Elvira. It's just nonstop action and that duet that grows out of the death of um Donna Anna's father, the Commendatore, feels entirely organic, and it's the first number in quotes of of the opera, the first song number that duet. Mm. And then we do have this amazing entrance of Donna Elvira, which is essentially an aria, but it's set as a trio, so that we have Leporello and Don Giovanni still in the action, they're still on stage. So they're not going to be quiet because this is as much verisimilitude as Mozart could muster in this stage of his understanding about opera as a form. So he's breaking form. He's making ostensibly the most important female character of the opera not get a solo entrance, which, you know, nowadays, big deal. That doesn't mean anything. But in the 18th century, with all of the rules about opera and all the form and all right. the, you know, uh, singer-centric diva behavior, uh, for the the lead soprano to not have a moment alone on the stage to sing her aria. And it's a very hard aria on top of that, too. And then we have uh, the first aria of the evening, which is uh, Leporello, which is uh, Madamina, which okay. is one of the all-time great bass baritone arias. I mean, I think True. you could put that up with anything in the canon. And, you know, bass baritones want to sing that aria. Even just- I've sung that aria. In the shower, but you know, who's counting? And it begins to draw the picture of Don Giovanni, who, as I said, doesn't really have a proper aria on his own. And it makes us begin to realize that this entire opera with the title of Don Giovanni is about how he affects other people Mm -hmm. and what other people think of him. Mm. And uh, that's a brilliant way to draw a character, to draw the title character by his relationship to everybody else. And don't, and Madamina is, like I said, an amazing aria. It's hilarious. It's got lists in it and we love lists in opera. And it's, you know, can be a great comic moment, comic relief. And then that goes right into the next scene, which is this, you know, it's all like all of a sudden the sun comes out and it's Zerlina and Mazzetto. And we get like this very happy peasant, you know, moment. And that is interrupted by, uh, you know, Mazzetto's, uh, okay. I see I'm getting the, I'm getting the hook here. I'm, I've got to, you know, conf- I have to bow down to the hierarchy here. So it brings in the politics. And then we have the most famous seduction in maybe all of opera, Lacha de la So it's just like, it goes from strength to strength, this first act. And we haven't even gotten to, um, the next thing that I've, I'm going to drop my clip in right here. So af- just as Don Giovanni is about to take away Zerlina off stage, um, we have the entr- the entrance again of Donna Avira with this very fast uh, you know, rage aria uh afuji traditor. It's like all of a minute long, uh, to kind of like wipe away the stage and to leave Don Giovanni alone. And then we have the re-entrance of Donna Tav- Don Tavia and Donna Anna. And Don Giovanni uh, you know, says, Of course, I will help you find whoever did this to your father. You know, you have my uh, confidence you have my my support and then dona Elvira comes in again and it's hilarious it's like ugh, this again and this is the genius moment of the opera let's hear a little bit of this clip So that's from the famous production of uh Don Giovanni with Ruggero Raimondi and Takanova as Donna Elvira with Eda Moser and Kenneth Rygel as uh Ottavio and Anna. Um, that is the gaslighting quartet. This is the quartet <laughs> where basically, you know, uh Don Giovanni has to be two people at the exact same time. He has to, you know, placate Donna Elvira and convince. Don Ottavio and Donna Anna that she's crazy. And just the music what he what Don Giovanni does in this quartet is just so genius. We see him thinking, we see him trying to solve this problem. How am I going to get out of this one, you know? And it's just it's marvelous. And like it really is the first time I think in opera that we see gaslighting happen like in real time. It's like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so of course, there's more. Uh, the act continues and we can talk about, you know, the other arias like Dallas Apache and Orsai Kilonore and Zerlina's Batti Batti Belmazetto and then the genius of the act one finale with its use of dance rhythms and with... Um, the on stage band that plays in a different tempo right. as the yeah. orchestra pit, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's so brilliant. And the mask trio, which is another glorious ensemble, which is embedded within this larger finale. So that's where I'm going to, I'm going to stop right there. Cause I know that we're going to go toe to toe with each component of uh, these acts, the verisimilitude, uh, the arias, uh, the form. Uh, and I think, uh, Don Giovanni really beats all of those other operas just for act one. I'm not going to say that Don Giovanni <laughs> is my favorite opera. We know it's well, not. Well, it's
2: just acts. It's acts against yeah. each other. So I, I cannot wait for the next show when we when we actually pick a winner on this. Of course, let us know what your opinions are. You can send us that voice memo your emails, your hot takes, opera box score at gmail.com. You
3: can also send bribes to the judges <laughs> if you I take you're no so bribes.
2: Inclined. This is pure showdown. Two-minute drill. It's coming up. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week.
4: Central City Opera has announced that CEO and President Pamela Pontos would be leaving the company right in the middle of the summer season. An official statement said that her relationship with the organization, quote, has ended. The announcement comes after months of contract negotiations with AGMA and an alleged contract violation early this month. The eternal power struggle between Katharina Wagner and the board
3: of shareholders at Bayreuth is heating up over the question of augmented reality in the festival's current Parsifal. The production originally called for AR glasses for all 2,000-odd audience members, but the board refused to fund it, only allowing 330 pairs of glasses per performance. Said former board member Tony Schmidt, quote, The board would like to have the productions they saw 50 years ago, back when they were young. But that's not art, it's a museum.
2: Ouch, and just a week before the Bayrock Festival begins, not all the performances are sold out. One reason high ticket prices, the artistic director, Katarina Wagner, says she, quote, warned patrons about price increases several times. Most tickets cost over 200 euros and the front rows go up for 460 euros.
3: The orchestra of the Royal Opera House has voted overwhelmingly in favor of a strike after management proved reluctant to gradually return the orchestra's pay to pre-pandemic levels. Naomi Pohl, General Secretary of the Musicians' Union, said, quote, This was a conclusive ballot result which shows the strength of feeling among, among our members at ROH. They are being reasonable in
4: their requests. Congratulations to the new Lindemann Young Artists. The Metropolitan Opera's development program announced its roster for the 2023-24 season. They are Sopranos Amanda Batista, Juliana Gregorian, Magdalena Kuzma, and Brittany Olivia Logan. Meta Sopranos Mare Therese Carmack and Almina. Hassan, tenors Daniel O'Hearn, Go Daniel, Yong Park, and Matthew Cairns, baritones Eliomara Coelho and Daniel Rich, bass baritone Lei Bu, and coach pianists Deborah Robertson, Juan Jose Lazaro, and Bin Yu Sanford, all future friends of the show.
2: Major award time. Tenor Juan Diego Flores received the first Premio Rubini Award from the Fondazione Rubini last week. That was following a gala performance at the Arena di Verona. And in Torre del Lago, conductor Gianandrea Nozeda has received the Puccini Award. Said Nozeda, Puccini has always fascinated me for his unique ability to take the opera form from the great tradition of the 19th century the modernity of the 20th with amazing cultural curiosity and wisdom.
3: In trade news, Richard Mantle is set to become the interim chair of the board of the UK's Grange Festival in December. He'll succeed Tim Parker, who joined the board in 2017 and has held the role of chair since
4: 2021. More trade news and it could be you. Brooklyn-based American Opera Project is seeking a full-time general director. Preference will be given to applicants who apply by August 1st. So head on over to the link in the show notes and tell them you listen to Opera Box Score, which is the equivalent of a bachelor's degree in opera and sports. <laughs>
2: on the disabled list, Cardiff Singer of the World Prize winner Nadine Kucher has been diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. The Belarusian soprano took to social media to advise her followers, quote, "Take care of your health and listen to your body. It always tells us if there's a problem, but we often write off symptoms for something not essential." We at Opera Box 4 send Nadine and her loved ones our best wishes.
3: Jonas Kaufmann continues to cancel engagements, this time his July 25th recital with Helmut Deutsch at Bayerische Staatsoper. He said, quote, Unfortunately, I'm not yet able to sing for a whole evening. The voice is fine, but I can tell my body hasn't recovered from the severe after effects of the antibiotics and I still need rest. Ticket holders will have been treated to a performance by Piotr Beczawa, stepping in for his ailing
0: colleague.
2: Exit stage right, Polish tenor Leszwa Polak has died at 95. Polak is most associated with Polish National Opera, performing there regularly between 1963. And, 1987.
4: and on this day, July 24th, premieres include Francesco Uttini's Il Re Pastore in Stockholm in 1755, Giovanni Paesiello's Lo Sposo Burlato in St. Petersburg in 1778, Jacques Offenbach's Coscoletto or Le Lazzarone in Bad Ams, Germany in 1865, Richard Strauss's Friedenstag or The Day of Peace in Munich in 1938, Alberto Ginastera's Don Rodrigo in Buenos Aires in 1964, and Michael Torquay's Strawberry Fields at the Glimmerglass Opera in 1995. Birthdays include French composer Adolphe Adam in Paris in 1803, tenor Carlo Negrini uh, who created the role of Gabriele Adorno in Simon Bocanegra. He was born in 1826. In 1861, French baritone Maurice Renault was born. He created roles in operas by Massonet, Mascagni, and Sassons. English music writer Percy Scholes was born in 1877. He compiled the Oxford Companion to music. Ernest Bloch, the American Swiss composer, was born in Geneva in 1880. American nightingale soprano Josephine Lucchese was born in San Antonio, Texas in 1901. And on this day, July 24th in 1921, it was the birth of tenor Giuseppe Di Stefano in Sicily.
2: And that is your two minute drill.
0: Dacca è la mia violetta agi per me lascio dovizie, amori e
1: le compose feste, ove agli omaggi avvezza vede a schiavo ciascun di sua bellezza. E allora contenta in questi ameni nuovi scorda per me qui presso a lei io mi sento e dal soffio d'amor rigenerato scordo nei caudi.
4: so many examples of why we love Giuseppe Di Stefano, especially tenors trying to figure out how to sound natural like Paparotti (laughs) or like Di Stefano. And here is just an example. We're not even hearing an aria. We're hearing how he gets through this uh, recitativo from uh, La Traviata. It sounds like he's talking. We always say, canto come si parla, sing as you speak. And this Mm -hmm. is such a great example of what it can sound like if you just sing the way you speak, a, such a sunny, clear, Italianate, bright, and very charming sound. We know that he ruined his voice. <laughs> but, <laughs> you can't have everything. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> the end of 2022, we were doing our 2023 predictions, and I said that Central City Opera and AGMA the singers and stage managers union would not come to agreement. Well, I was wrong about that, but I was close because there were still problems. Now Pamela Panto's is out in the middle of the season at one yeah. of America's biggest summer opera festivals.
3: No reason given, but we can guess kind of situation. Uh, yeah, this is, this is, I feel like every single week for the past, what, six months, there's been another twist with the central city opera I, I this is really, really, really interesting because she specifically was highlighted in a lot of what the union was saying about what was wrong with the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, of course, you know, <clears throat> who knows? I, I'm more inclined to trust the union than CCO on a lot of these uh, a lot of these allegations, but uh, certainly. She was at the center of a huge firestorm, one of the most brutal and public uh, management versus union fights we've seen in a long time. And we've seen a lot of them at this point. And to, uh, and, and like the, the announcement that, like, without almost any real, any warning, without any indication, holding her in that position, you know, through the entire thing. To just, you know, on a, you know, just see the announcement just a couple days ago that, oh, she's gone.
2: Well, the silence is deafening, right? Right. When when it's two words in a statement that that she's moved on. The the fact of the matter is, is that Pamela Pantos came on to the company in 2022. And she was supposed to overlap with Pat Pierce, the outgoing general director. And that never really happened. Yeah. And so... I don't think that she got a fair shake in terms of getting to know that organization, how it's structured, what its values were. You know, there was no passing of the baton, and then here we are a year later, and this this baton has been dropped, and this company is in the news for all the wrong reasons.
3: Yeah, I I think that there was a uh, a lot of a lot of things that have been going wrong for a long time, which really crystallized under her leadership, um, and it was a. Uh, yeah, it was pretty nasty. I I wonder if the if the alleged contract violations from I think it was le- just last week, wasn't it? Or was yeah, it 2 weeks yeah, ago and, uh, with the dancers yeah. who were um who were supposed to be who were non-union uh, despite the contract that they just yeah. put together just barely in time. I wonder if that was if that was like the last straw, if someone was like you got to go uh, or if she was just fed up and and left but I would love to know what the, the the details. This is one of those, you know, industry gossip things that I'm just Yikes. so fascinated by, you know.
2: So problems with the unions at Central City, and then uh, those challenges extending over to England as well at the Royal Opera House.
3: Yeah, this is a this was a, a resounding vote. Right. Um, it was something like uh, like eighty something percent voted yes mm-hmm. with like a ninety seven percent turnout. Right. Like it was, right. Uh, it seems like maybe one person didn't show up and one other person was like actually I'm okay with this and that was it you know
2: they're like I checked the wrong box yeah, exactly
3: wrong uh yeah it, it's it's uh, the the issue at hand is that um the management does not want to return it to uh to return their pay to pre-pandemic levels um but apparently according to uh the union spokespeople uh, it was not just it was not just like they wouldn't, you know, it wasn't as if they said, hey, give us all our money back right now. You know, they, there was no commitment from ROH to put in writing basically that it would go back up to pre-pandemic levels. And especially with the inflation the way it is hitting uh, England almost as hard, if you know, about around the same hardness here Harder, yeah. in the U.S., uh, where... Uh, where, like, you know, they're they're really feeling the pinch over there, and I think that is very much reflected in how unanimous this vote is, you know. So, um, look, we'll the musicians'
2: see... union is doing what it what unions do best, which is yep. put management's feet to the fire and go on strike, right? That's, exactly. You know, and they're doing it in the summertime where, you know they're not in the meat of the season here at mm-hmm. Covent Garden. So, which I think is a is a generous yep. timing, I can put it that way, but. You know they're going to
4: sort this out one way or the other. Well, the you know? the uh, complaint, the grievance is given a, a six month. The ballot is giving a, a six month window to take action. So let's yeah let's set let's set a timer for um, <laughs> what is it February? We, we can, you, split, can yeah. it. You, you can do yeah. it. If you
3: want, George, now's your time to redeem yourself. What is your prediction as to whether or not they'll have a season in six months?
2: Oh, they'll definitely have a season hundred percent. Okay.
3: Okay. Yeah. All right. Yep. All right. Absolutely. See. Heard it here. You're, first. You're, no. you're batting a zero right now, but we're excited <laughs> to see <laughs>
2: That's true? That's true. That's so bogus, man. And then, of course, oh my gosh, Byroyd! It's just they love the drama there. I mean, opera's full uh, of I love drama. The drama. We too. all get that. Th- this is madness. I, I, I don't know where to start on this. I'm going to let one of you go first.
4: Weston.
3: Oh yeah. I mean, I I, I live for the Byroid drama. I always have. Uh, I mean, first of all, I, I think the lesser story here is that ticket prices went up, you know. uh Katarina Wagner made a statement um uh basically saying like you know she she didn't want the price hike to happen, but she said it had to happen. You know, I don't know what their books books look like. I don't know how necessary it actually is. It's not surprising that it's not that their tickets are not all the seats are not being filled because it is you know it's expensive to go to bayroy but i think the main re- the main problem here isn't really price it is more accessibility of tickets right uh she also talked about having making it easy to get tickets because a lot of these tickets get bought up by other organizations. Mm
2: -hmm, Sure.
3: Like uh, famously, like, you know, you can, you you can try to buy tickets when they go, when they're released on the internet. But if you miss the first few, you know, seconds, they're, they're gone and like scattered to the wind. There's
2: no difference though between buying tickets for Bayreuth and buying tickets for Beyonce. Like you have, you know, if you have a special credit card, you're going to be in line a little bit earlier. You get your finger on the trigger, you know, um, demand will exceed supply. Yeah. Uh, and so you just, you know, pays your money, takes your choice. It's just good luck.
3: Yeah. I, I I will say, I think that, uh, you know, raising prices is never a, a great idea for a company. I know Byroid is in such a strange, rarefied position where they can, you know, usually apparently, maybe not this time, (laughs) excuse me. Uh, they can charge these kinds of prices. um, Because they're so unique in what they do. But at the same time, like, I I do think, you know, Wagner was, you know, we all know, kind of a, a terrible person. But I really love the idea behind a lot of what drove Bayreuth's design, right? The fact there are no boxes, for example, and everyone has an equal seating field. There's no you know, good seats, quote unquote, mm. in the traditional 19th century. Well, opera clearly sense. there
2: are because the front rows are twice as much as Exactly. Other seats. So. And I,
3: I feel like that kind of flies in the face of like what I think the festival should be, which I think leads into a more interesting discussion about the other news in Bayreuth, uh, which of course Google is
2: glasses.
3: The Google Glass. <laughs> yeah, the 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 AR. So Back in 2008, um, my <laughs> restructured, this, this is how every story starts, you know, uh, back in 2008, my restructured, it's sort of leadership model, uh, and ended up giving much more power, uh, over to the board, um, uh, o- over the, the, whoever the current Wagner in charge is. Um, and, uh, and because of that, the board has you know, an outsized influence. And right now they are controlled more or less by the Society of Friends of Bayreuth, which is this venerable organization that has been around, I think, since Wagner was alive. Marvelous. Um, and uh and because of this, they have uh, a very vested interest uh in most people's eyes. In keeping things more or less as they are, there is a, you know, Bayreuth is always in this really interesting artistic space, right? Where I think the best of Bayreuth, it's this laboratory for how to present operas Mm -hmm. in the time in which it is being being done, because they have this this very constant venue, this very constant repertoire um which is also the very heady wagnerian ideas and all all the controversies associated with it all the all the thematic relevance of it all um it it screams out for like reinterpretation and redramatization um and that is that that can be done extremely interestingly and controversially at bayreuth at its worst bayreuth is a static you know monument to a random German composer who happens to be an anti-Semite, you know, and, um, and in general, whoever is leading Bayreuth, you know, if they're more conservative and more prone to upholding the status quo, that is Bayreuth at its worst. Um, and I have no idea how good or bad or cheesy this AR idea is, but I think it is so indicative of the, of, of what Bayreuth has been and can be at its worst to literally get so petty as to say we're only going to pay for a third of the audience who are probably in those 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 expensive <laughs> seats, you know, to get that, you know, right. it's so just
2: what the board is saying is, is we hate this idea, but we don't hate it enough that we're going to cancel the whole thing. Let me let me th- so thank you for that question. I'm going to fill yeah. in the details here. So it's the production of Parsifal, directed by New York City-based director Jay Scheib. So Scheib's whole aesthetic throughout his whole career off Broadway has been using cameras and video he really has pioneered that aesthetic mm-hmm. from the very beginning i mean along with say the, the worcester group so the, in, in this production uses you know ar glasses i happen to see some of the renderings of like what you see through the air glasses it, it kind of reminds me of those magic eye books where sort of like you let your <laughs> eyes wander so everything could become 3d but here's the thing right in terms of the 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 processes and the systems of making opera, especially at this level, there is no way that 2,000 pairs of AR glasses were signed off on at some point in the production Mm -hmm. process. And now the board is like, actually, we're going to only pay for 330 Like, no production manager or technical director would make this like, well, it's going to be contingent on the board the week before the show opens if we're going to do this thing or not yeah right like these processes are in plans for years So yes. something went wrong somewhere do i like ar and operant no i've said that before on the show but mm-hmm. this does not add up
3: yeah it, it is the timing is really kind of bizarre um this is a uh I, th- this problem has been around for a while it's not just like it's not just an announcement that happened this week it's been unknown element for a while and it's it seems to be part of a battle between katarina wagner and uh uh and the board because i from what i from what i gather reading kind of between the lines uh katarina approved it or at least said that's a good idea let's do it and they went ahead with the designs and you know i assume some of the rendering and and stuff like that yeah and then the board wanted to nix the glasses completely and the uh, the compromise they reached was that only some people can experience the production as intended so, so which literally is so wild Everybody's
2: unhappy, right? Kevin Wagner yeah. is unhappy that they're they're losing money. The audience are unhappy because some of them feel slighted. The board is unhappy because they don't like the idea and Jay Shy, to his credit, regardless of the integrity of this idea, it hasn't been executed to the way he designed it at one of the greatest opera houses in the world. So yeah, literally yeah. no one is happy.
3: Is it any wonder that Katrina Wagner was like, F it, we're doing Rienzi in two
2: years? <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to wrap the show up. I, I don't know what to say after Rienzi.
1: Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score.
2: So great to be back with you two on the show. Man, it was a barn burner. Good call, bad call. We're going to wrap it up.
4: A
3: Byroid burner,
4: maybe. <laughs> it
2: was indeed starting with Oliver Camacho.
4: Two quick good calls. Um, you remember our free throw guest artist, uh, our guest interview from a couple weeks ago, Dorote Meals. Uh, WFMT will be broadcasting my complete interview with her, my full length interview, a full hour with Dorote Meals, uh, Saturday, July 29th. Uh, and I just finished editing it because I'm going to Santa Fe, so I had to do it way earlier than I normally do and she's so delightful she's so smart she's so cheeky and then she mm. takes it very serious she was talking about Bach and about thinking about the texts of some of the passions and it got to a moment where it was like oh my god I can't talk anymore and she's like she's that type of person that understands the power of what we do as singers as artists and can really just crystallize those ideas for you so I recommend you check that out. Uh, wfmt Um, you can listen online or get the app or if you're in chicago tune in tune into the station four o'clock this saturday and speaking of uh, friends of the show uh janai bruger uh was the soloist in last year's uh Kaddish Symphony that was put on at um Ravinia Festival. And PBS has announced the air date for it on great performances, which will be Monday, August 21st. Check your local listings. That concert also features Oswaldo Golozhov's, uh I forget what it was called, but it was like an orchestral piece that had shofars in it. Um so yeah, it was baby. very Yeah
2: that's awesome. I actually can play the show far. I should have auditioned. Darn it. Weston Williams.
3: Uh, so uh, I'm about to date this episode. If you're listening in the future, um, I I I, be, I did the the Barbenheimer uh, over the weekend, seeing Barbie and uh, Oppenheimer in the same day. But what I was really enjoying <laughs> was opera social media uh, talking, trying to jump on the trend uh, and I, I think the closest we got to success was the Metropolitan Opera offering uh, free streaming of Doctor Atomic to celebrate uh, a Barbenheimer weekend.
2: Yes. Um,
3: which which is great. I love that. I love Doctor Atomic, as everyone I'm sure knows so extremely good. well at this point. Um, but it, it got me thinking because everyone, all the opera, all the opera social media uh, interns were leaning very heavily on Doctor Atomic. Um, what is the opera equivalent of Barbie? We've got Oppenheimer. What's Barbie? Uh, the, the closest I could think of was I, I don't know, maybe like um Ravel's L'Enfant. But I it doesn't feel quite right to me. So if you have an idea what is opera's Barbie equivalent to all of you listeners, let me know personally at operaboxcore at gmail.com. I would love to hear your take
2: a great challenge good call from me there is a viral video that has been released by the french team for the women's world cup link is going to be on our website that you can check it out i don't want to talk about it because i don't want to spoil it but it is a must see video about the french side that's it for this week's edition of america's talk radio show about opera make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes operaboxscore at gmail.com and you can find links to stuff we've talked about at our website operaboxcore.com. hey that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are give back to the obs on our donate page thanks to michael in ann arbor michigan for their donation they're getting some obs merch how about you Mm -hmm. your announcer is norm waddell your creative consultant oliver camacho and your audio editor is weston williams For our guest, Patrick Dupre, quickly, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera and speak out in favor of simplifying ticket orders for the Bayreuth Festival. (laughs) We're back with an all new show next week when we finally decide what is the best single act of a Mozart opera.
3: Definitively.
2: Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes and more opera job postings. Join us.